Tony's going to come and bring the word to us. Good. Yeah, do that. <laughs> cool. All right. I can hear him on. All right. Well, it is. It has has been too long, uh, as Mark was saying. You know, for me not being here, we uh, arrived in Denver last uh, year ago, January, and so we've been talking about this for some time. And so I'm glad to finally be able to get here. I I actually preached uh, in this church years ago. Uh, back when it was still a fairly young church plant. I'm sure, I don't know if anybody here remembers me. He didn't have the white beard then. But uh, it's great to be here with you guys. And uh, I get to preach the Word of God. So we're going to be in Psalm 22. If you have your Bibles electronically or otherwise, I could turn there with me. Psalm 22. As you guys are getting there, I wonder if uh, you remember the Emmaus Road story. After Jesus died and then rose again, there was a period of time, about 40 days, the scriptures tell us that he was here on the earth and, and was appearing to his disciples, preparing them for his ultimate departure. And uh, a couple of his disciples are, are on the way home. They're, they're done. Uh, and Jesus appears. And the, the scriptures tell us, that this, you got to remember, this is the uh, risen Christ who has not yet ascended back into heaven, appears to them. And somehow, I, I imagine by the Spirit of God, he, uh, the, he is, uh, they're kept from knowing him. So they don't, they don't know it's Jesus. And he comes up, and to them, he's a stranger. And, and so they're, they're just downcast. And he asks them, essentially, why, why are you guys downcast? What's going on here? And they're like, dude, are you, are you the only one in all of Israel who hasn't heard the events of the taken place, and so they begin to tell him how they were following this man named Jesus, who uh, they felt was a prophet and they hoped was the one to redeem Israel, but then he was taken captive and crucified. And then there were some women uh, days later uh, among their company that went to his tomb and found it empty, claiming that a, a soul, a, an angel of the Lord had told them Jesus had risen. And they said, then Peter and John went to check it out. They found the tomb empty, but no angel. And so these guys, they're, they're, they don't know what to believe anymore. They're discouraged, and they're, they're just going home. They, they're packing it in. And here comes Jesus along the way. And here's what Jesus said to them in response after hearing their tale of woe. He said, oh, foolish ones. This is in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, Jesus had, had taught them that all the scriptures spoke of him. They pointed to him. And so, you know, he, so he's reminding them, you, you know, have you not heard? Why don't you believe this? You, you've been taught this, essentially. Well, whenever I've read that story, I've wondered, what scriptures did Jesus actually refer to? If anybody else thought that and wondered, I wonder what, what scriptures did he turn to in the Old Testament, from Moses all the way through? Well, I believe one of those scriptures almost certainly had to have been this psalm, Psalm 22. Uh, it, is, it is an absolutely amazing 
psalm because in this psalm we we're actually we enter into the very mind and heart and experience of Jesus Christ suffering on the cross for our sins and we also enter into the, his joy in the triumph over sin that he accomplished on the cross through his death and then through his resurrection from the dead and we get a sense of his missional heart for lost souls for the gospel to go out uh, to the gener- throughout the generations throughout the whole world. So let's, let's read this psalm together. I know it's, it's a little bit longer, um, but I think it's worth it. This is the word of God. We want to read this, and, and I hope that you'll hear Jesus speaking in this psalm as we read it together. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like raving, ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the jaws, to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him but has heard, and he cried to him when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous 
of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Well, Lord, we just ask for your help right now, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to your word. Lord, anoint the preaching of your word. And Lord, may we enter into not only uh, the sense of the suffering that you endured, but the joy that you uh, experienced as well in the triumph that you accomplished for us. Lord, may we fresh see and experience something of that triumph in our hearts at work even this morning as your spirit is alive and active in each one who has trusted in you we ask all this in your name jesus amen now this psalm uh, is is quoted often in the new testament in uh, hebrews chapter 2 verse 12 for instance uh, it quotes uh, from verse 22 of this psalm in a way that is as though Jesus himself is speaking because that's the intended purpose. Um, in fact, Jesus himself used, if you will, quoted uh, these very words himself on the cross. You probably recognize some of the phrases in particular, and we're going to tie back into them. James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on this psalm, says about this psalm that it's the song of the dying shepherd crying out to the Father from the cross. That changes greatly uh, how we think about the psalm, how we, uh, as Christians, look through the lens of the gospel and interpret and apply this, this psalm even to our own lives. Now, King David, obviously, there, there are things in this psalm that, that um, could apply to him, but there are a lot of things in this psalm that go way beyond the, the personal experience and life experience of David. This is, this is one of the most messianic psalms uh, in, in all of the Psalter. And so again, well, it's, it's just a, even a greater privilege for me to be able to preach, essentially preach the gospel to you from Psalm 22. It is just absolutely amazing. King David, through the Spirit, is, is kind of seeing, I think, the, uh, the cross and the suffering of Jesus in some way. Some of this reads almost like a, an eyewitness account, only he's writing it from the perspective that Christ would communicate. So we're going to look at this. We're going to unpack this together in, in, in three main points this morning. The first point is the suffering of Jesus for us. The suffering of Jesus for us. And that, that will take the, the more lion's share, if you will, out of the three points of our time this morning. Uh, it, it's covering the first half of this psalm uh, that is you know, Jesus communicating to God the Father through David centuries before he was even born. The second point, the triumph of Jesus in us. You know, it's not, it, the, the, it could also be the, the triumph of Jesus, but it, it's the triumph of Jesus actually now active at work and in us that I want to draw attention to. And then three, the proclamation of Jesus by us, which is where all this aims. So let's start with the suffering of Jesus for us. The first thing we, we come across in verse 1 and 2 is what we could call the cry of dereliction. 
Now, some of us, as we read these verses, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? I'm sure a lot of us could re- relate to this, resonate with the, the, what's being expressed here. Uh, maybe you have actually experienced some, in some way feeling forsaken by those close to you, abandoned by loved ones. You know, children get abandoned by their parents. In this day and age, way too many marriages end in divorce, and oftentimes through you know, great pain uh, that affects not only the kids, but a spouse can feel absolutely abandoned, uh, forsaken. Maybe you have experience where either a friend, coworker, or someone that you trusted and you feel like they have stabbed you in the back. And to this day, it could be years later, you're still struggling with that. So you might read this and think, I, I, I felt this. In fact, it, when we go through hardship and trial, oftentimes God himself feels distant from us. And so maybe you have, maybe you're right now in a, in a circumstance where you're, you're asking, God, where are you? What, draw near, God. Where are you right now in my life? And so there, there's ways that we can relate to this. But when we realize that these verses were actually words that Jesus himself spoke out, cried out, out of his own phys- the physical pain, suffering, and the agony he was experiencing for us on the cross, that changes all of this radically, puts it in a whole different light. See, Jesus knew this feeling of being forsaken like none of us have ever experienced. In fact, no human being has experienced the forsakenness that Jesus experienced on the cross. No human being will experience that until the end of the age and the day of judgment. Because what Jesus experienced, unlike any of us, and let me just say this, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, you will never experience what Jesus experienced. Because what he experienced on the cross was being utterly forsaken by God. It's a depth of forsakenness that no human being has yet to know. Even the deepest, most uh, difficult season that you've gone through in your life can't touch this. Jesus took this for us. Here's how the Apostle Paul viewed what, what Jesus what happened on the cross, which actually is referencing the very moment that Jesus would have cried these, these words out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians often call this the great exchange. You know, Jesus, he took our sin and our hell, if you will, and we get his righteousness in the heaven that he deserved. And, and that's what's, what's happening. So God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin. He did not sin. That's one thing the scriptures make very clear. The writer of Hebrews says this. He was like us in every way in our humanity, except that he never sinned. He was perfect in righteousness. The only human being ever to have been perfect in righteousness and on his own, acceptable to God the Father. And yet, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Here's, here's what R.C. Sproul says, describing this, this, the very moment on the cross where this is taking place, this exchange is happening. He says, Jesus becomes in the sight of God the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. 
he's now polluted with the cumulative filth of the sin he bears for his sheep. Now, the father breaks fellowship with him. He averts his divine glance. Jesus, as the very incarnation of sin, is consigned to the outer darkness. See, Jesus took our sins and the sins of every human being, past, present, and future, who will believe in him. He took our sins upon himself and the guilt condemnation that we deserve. We heard a word this morning about those who might be struggling with condemnation. He took all that on the cross and so identified with our sins, he became sin in the eyes of God. He who knew no sin became sin. It was as though Jesus, think of this, it's as though Jesus was the liar. Jesus was the cheat. Jesus was the adulterer, the gossip. It's as though he had impure thoughts and lusted in his heart. It's as though he was the one who coveted, hated, stole, lost his temper in sinful anger, spoke harshly to those closest to him. Literally, he became sin in the eyes of God the Father. The gospel tells us, the gospels tell us that at noon on this day that Jesus was crucified, that a great darkness come, came upon the land. Theologians believe this, this is a moment when our sins were placed upon him and the father turned his face away from his son. Because to look at his son was to look at the pure ugliness of our sin upon him. And in his holiness, God couldn't could look, look at him. Jesus experienced not only the wrath of God, he experienced the forsakenness of God, which some would say you could define hell as being in that place of utter forsakenness. Again, no human being has yet to experience it. Here's how Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, describes this moment in history. He says, I don't think that the records of time or even of eternity contain a sentence more full of anguish. Here, the wormwood and the gall and all the other bitternesses are outdone. Here, you may look as into a vast abyss. And though you strain your eyes and gaze till, till sight fails you, yet you perceive no bottom. It is measureless, unfathomable, inconceivable. This anguish of the Savior on your behalf and mine is no more to be measured and weighed than the sin which needed it or the love which endured it. We will adore where we cannot comprehend. That's what we're going to end this morning. <laughs> that's that's how, how we live our life in worship of this Savior. The, the last words of, that Jesus spoke on the cross, which are not referenced in this psalm, uh, I think we also referenced it this morning, it is, it is finished. It is finished. Not, not only, I mean, at that moment, what was happening is Jesus was experiencing the full outpouring of God's wrath for our sins on the cross. He had to continue enduring in that until it was completely done. Until he had exhausted all the wrath of God, satisfied it completely. Then he could say, it's finished. It's finished. It's done. That, that's why, as we heard this morning, uh, this is amazing because I had this in there long before I had any clue there's going to be a word along these lines. But in Romans 8, chapter, Romans 8 verse 1, 
it says again, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means zero. None. Nada. Not not an ounce. There, There is no condemnation. There's nothing left for you or I to have to hold on to and work through. There's nothing that is waiting us on judgment day. Not even one single thought, word, or deed that you have done or ever will do. There's no condemnation, zero, for us in Christ Jesus. Jesus took it all. Now, I don't know why the, the, the psalmist, maybe it's just the way, obviously it's the way the Spirit anointed him in writing this. He begins with the, kind of the worst uh, suffering that Jesus had to endure on the cross. But then he begins, he begins to shift in verse 6, beginning to look at, firstly, the humiliation that Jesus suffered. So the worst thing that Jesus experienced was the forsakenness of God on our behalf. But he, there was a lot of other suffering that was taking place, and every bit of it is meaningful to us. In verse 6 through 8, it expresses the mocking that Jesus endured and how he postured himself to suffer in our place. In verse 6, he compares himself to a helpless, lowly, powerless worm. Scorned and despised, he says. And, and we know he was scorned and despised by the very ones he came to save. We also know that when Jesus was taken captive in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, brought to the chief priest's house, the, the chief priests and Sadducees of Israel mocked him. They beat him. They spit on him before giving him over to Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pontius Pilate, when he then condemned him to death, ultimately the, the Roman soldiers take him. They beat him. Then they mock him. After they have flogged him near death, they put a robe on him and a crown of thorns, and they mock him as, as king. As he's hanging there on the cross, people are coming by and, and watching and looking. And some of them are mocking him with the very words of verses 7 and 8. All who see me mock me, it says. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And he's there to save some of those very individuals. He's dying on the cross for their sins. In verse 17, we read how his life was slipping away, and Jesus would have felt like his life was literally floating and slipping away from him. And his people were gloating over him. In verse 18, the, the soldiers actually divided up his clothing, even as it's referenced here in verse 18 of this psalm. You can go to the Gospels and see they actually, right before him at the foot of the cross, uh, cast lots for his clothes. While dying on the cross, he would have felt like his bones and his hands, his arms were, were, and pelvis were out of joint. He would have become dehydrated and anemic to the point of feeling like his life was being poured out, was melting away, as it says in verse 14. And his tongue would have felt like it was sticking to the roof of his mouth, which very close to what is referenced in verse 15, sticking, his tongue sticking to his jaws. They pierce my hands and feet, the psalmist says in verse 16. Uh, that, that's, not, he's not, that's not David speaking of his own hands and feet. His hands and feet were not pierced. This, this is one of the most remarkable phrases to me. I don't know what David was seeing in the, through the eyes of the Spirit at this moment, but this is describing a crucifixion 
which from what we can tell was invented, that, that form of torturous death was invented by the Romans centuries after this was written. And yet he's speaking of it as though he's right there observing, seeing it even perhaps through the eyes of Christ somehow. His eyes, his hands and feet crucified, nailed to the cross. And when I think of all of this in, in the Psalms that, that resonate and echo with what we find in the Gospels, one of the questions that comes to mind is why? Why did the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who could have called down a legion of angels to his defense in an instant, why did he subject himself to all of this for us? We, I mean, the easy answer is, you know, he died for our sins. But, but why? Why did, why did you do this? Well, uh, Paul, I think, helps us to grasp it in Philippians chapter 2. I want to read from verse 3 through 11, but I'm going to first start with verses 6 through 11. This should be familiar to a lot of us. Paul says, speaking of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just a glorious statement and picture uh, of the heart, the mindset of Christ, and and by being obedient, dying for us on the cross in the ways that we've uh, been described here in, verse, in, in Psalm 22. By going through that and doing that, and then as a result, now he is exalted to the highest place. And he is enthroned in the heavens. But, but Paul makes this glorious statement about Jesus following the, the previous verses. Where in verse 3 and 4, he's, he's telling us, have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind of Christ, which is, is, he says is yours in Christ. So this, this is the, the picture of the mindset of Christ going to the cross and his heart and, and purpose behind it. Back in, in uh, verse 3 and 4, here's what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves that is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God. So what, what, he is, what Paul is telling us is the one who is most worthy of, of praise in all the earth and all the heavens and, and below, in, in all of God's kingdom, the one who is most worthy of praise humbles himself to become a man. And he, he, he does that in order to save us from our sin. Remember what he said back in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin so that now in him we become the righteousness of God. So Jesus is not just an example for us to follow. Paul isn't saying this just because he's an example. But he's saying, have this mind among yourselves also, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's because of who we are in him. In Christ Jesus, we are, uh, we've been made alive. We have new life in union with Jesus. And so now our life is about growing in him, to be like him. 
And if you will, living out who we already are in him each and every day. So have this mindset uh, of yours. So Jesus had this mindset. He was humbling himself, being obedient to God the Father. Because from the beginning of time, from before the foundations of the world, God had set forth a, a plan. He's been working everything out according to his purpose throughout history. But Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this, that God set forth a plan for the fullness of time, a plan set forth in Christ Jesus. And the plan was to redeem a people for himself out of this fallen human race, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus, knowing this, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He had, had an objective at the end. It was us gathered uh, in, in the, the end of the ages in glory, re, the redeemed people of God. So, moving back, getting back into our, our psalm, the other thing that I want to draw attention to is, is about the Father's response to the Son. See, Jesus cries out to the Father in verse 2, as we've spent time unpacking that. But we're, there's no response from the Father. Then again, down in verse 19, uh, through 21, we hear again the heart cry of Jesus to the Father, still no response. And finally, when we get to verse 23 and 24, we see the Father has finally answered the pleas of the Son. There's, there's something significant in the, that gap of time. Why did the Father not respond to his Son whom he loved? Why did he not respond as he's crying out, my God, my God? I mean, why, it's, why did he turn away in the first place? But the, the silence of the father to his son's cries, as recorded in verse 1 and 2, in a sense, is his answer at that moment. The father cannot answer the son and reply to him. I, I, it's not that he wasn't able to hear him. He has turned away from him because our sins are upon him. And he's being forsaken. And the wrath of God is being poured out and you know, uh, satisfied completely on Jesus. And until that's done, the father cannot turn back to the son. He has to endure this. He has to experience this. So in a sense, as R.C. Sproul described, in that moment, Jesus is the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. And God the father cannot respond. But thank God he does respond, which tells us, that indeed, it's another evidence that indeed Jesus did complete what he came here to do. He satisfied the wrath of God for our sins completely. Because the Father could not have otherwise turned back to him. In fact, I believe, as I, as I look at this, this is just in my own, uh, I hope, sanctified imagination, so to speak, that, that it took everything of, of, the, of the power of God himself to not reply to his son. And that I don't believe there was probably a measurable uh, moment in time, not a millisecond, when Jesus had finally exhausted and satisfied the wrath of God. When it was finished, I don't believe there was even the slightest pause before the Father turns back to His Son. And so as He's crying out, draw near to me, why are you so far off? Come, help me. In an instant, as soon as He could, He was there. Because the scripture tells us, again, in Jesus, there was no sin. There was nothing to separate the Father from him except our sin. 
And when that had been satisfied, the payment for our sin was satisfied, it was over. And that's why Jesus could cry, it's finished. It's finished. Friends, this is why we can be confident, not only that there's no condemnation, but we can be confident that God is now our refuge and our strength, a very present help in times of trouble. I don't know what season of life you're in, what you're walking through right now, but if you're in a a dark place right now, you need to know if you're trusting in Jesus Christ that God is your refuge and strength because Jesus has removed and taken all of your sin, all of the guilt and condemnation. There's nothing now as well, just like there was nothing that would keep the Father from responding to the Son. There's nothing now keeping you from the Father. Your sins have been taken. See, this leads to what I I believe is the most important question that I could ask some of you this morning. See, it's, it's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus died for our sins. And I think it's amazing to unpack that from an Old Testament psalm, preaching the gospel like this to us. But here's the question. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you have not, this is the most serious thing that you could contemplate in your life. If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, repented and trusted in Him for your, the salvation of your soul, if you have not done that, then your sins are still upon you. And there's a day of judgment coming. We're all moving forward towards it at the end of this age. Those who have not trusted in in God's promise of salvation and in Jesus Christ as as the one who died for our sins and rose again, anyone who has not made that commitment of faith in Him is going to find themselves standing with nothing before God but your life. Your, Your thoughts, your words, your deeds, everything. And nothing that you can offer God is going to be able to appease for the sins that you have committed because every human being has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you'll be there with nothing but your sin. And God being a holy and just God will judge you for your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your sins. And you will be cast off and you will have to experience that forsakenness of God that Jesus took for all those who would trust in him. So there's no more important thing this morning than if there be anyone. And as I was preparing this morning, I was feeling like there could be even young people who have been raised in a Christian home. You cannot assume your salvation because you were raised in a Christian home. You must come before God and you must believe in Jesus yourself. Repent of your sins and trust him alone for the salvation of your soul. There is no other way. Now, that, that's point one. As I mentioned, the next two points are going to be comparatively short. Uh, no less important, but comparatively short. Because from this point forward, beginning verse 22 to the end of this psalm, things are moving forward towards um, celebrating the great victory that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Defeating sin and ultimately death. In uh, 
So my second point is the triumph of Jesus in us. The triumph of Jesus in us. And as we, we, we look at this in verse 22, one of the things we see is the, the delight of Jesus and his people, the church. He's anticipating, I believe, the joy of revealing the Father to us in, the, in his presence. Because read, read this together, verse uh, 22. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's anticipating being in the midst of the congregation of the gathered saints of God that he has died to save, redeemed. And then he, it shifts gears a little bit and it it speaks to us to praise him. All all of us to praise him. He says, all you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. And friends, we have much to be thankful for. We have so much to praise him for. Those who are sinners, that includes myself and I trust probably everybody here. Uh, We were sinners, we were rebels, we were enemies of God. But now, as in verse 22, he calls us brothers. In Christ, again, our sins, our guilt, our shame are gone. Through Jesus, we are now counted as offspring of Israel. We are of the people of God, the family of God. We are brothers uh, in Christ with Him. Jesus has, has done all this. And God the Father, who did not hide his, ultimately hide His face from His Son, once our sins were satisfied, He did not hide His face for, forever. And because of that, we can be confident today that he will not hide his face from us because we are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been removed, have been paid for. We uh, were once afflicted. We were once dead in our sins. But now we're free from the bondage of sin, free from the bondage and, and consequences of sin. We have new life in Jesus. And as the psalmist says in verse 26, we can find our satisfaction now in him alone. We who were once afflicted, now have God has, we were once far away, but now He is near. Now we are family. Now we are brothers in Christ. We have a new uh, identity, a new reality in Christ Jesus that we get to live out until we go to see Him face to face. And our faith becomes sight. I believe toward the end of this psalm, verse 27 through 29, it's echoing the final day when our Lord returns. Look at this with me. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. So now we, we're in Christ, and we're not dreading that day when Jesus returns. Because of being in Christ and knowing that our sins are gone, we, we can anticipate that day with joy, just like Jesus does. We look forward to the day when we can see him face to face. We will be completely changed, and the full reality, the manifest reality of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we will come into completely. Uh, Jesus will be our treasure. We will be gathered We'll be gathered with all the saints in glory, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
we'll also experience what uh, Paul said in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We will do so gladly, and we do so gladly now as we live for Him and anticipate that day of being gathered with all the saints in glory. But every demon, every person, even those who have not trusted in Jesus, who have lived for themselves in rebellion to God, will all acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will see it. My last point is the proclamation of Jesus by us. Because it's not just about us, you know, it's glorious that we get to worship and we get to experience uh, this intimate relationship with Jesus. But there's, there's more to this. Now, I, I believe as we look at verse 30 and 31, as soon as his suffering was over and, and, and the father had answered his pleas and drawn near to, to his son, Jesus is immediately focused on the proclamation of this good news. He's anticipating the day when all the saints in glory, uh, and, and as it says here, you know, uh, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. He's looking ahead to the generations and all the nations and all peoples, and there's going to be this glorious gathering. He's looking forward to all of that. So we say, get something of the missional heart of Jesus, and it's, it's global in scope. It has eternity in view. And, you know, as he's looking forward to this, he's seeing from people from all families, all nations. We, look, we can go forward to the Revel- book of Revelations and see that every tribe, every tongue is represented in the people of God. And we're gathered together. It, it reminds me of what Peter said in, in 1 Peter 2, talking about us as, as the people of God. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And and here's the reason, here's the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We've been gloriously redeemed and saved and brought into now the people of God. We are part of the people of God throughout redemptive history. And we are now the, a chosen race, a royal pe- priesthood. We are a people who were not once a people so that now we might proclaim to all peoples His glorious excellencies, His marvelous light. And what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming what it says right here at the end, <laughs> that He has done it. We're proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaiming uh, His righteousness and that he has done it. We're, not, we're, we're proclaiming to people who aren't righteous what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that, that in the, go, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For this reason, he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We're preaching, when we preach the gospel, that there's a righteousness that's apart from the law that's by faith. It's available to all who believe in Jesus. It's that great exchange that we referenced earlier. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That that is an exchange that happens through faith in Jesus. When you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he takes your sins and your guilt. And Jesus has already paid for them on the cross. 
And in exchange, he credits you with the righteousness that Jesus himself earned and deserved. So it's, instead of us, he's, him seeing us the sinner, he's seeing us the righteous one. And that's what the scripture says. We, we are declared righteous. That is, we are justified by God. And it's by grace through faith. It's not our own righteousness. It's a righteousness that is credited to us. This is the heart of the gospel. And this is what we preach. Jesus has done it. He has finished it. He has taken all of our sins. And now there is redemption and forgiveness of sins for all who believe in him. And there's a righteousness that is credited to to us. So that before God, you are righteous in his sight through faith in Jesus. This is the power of the gospel. It's the power to change lives. And and Paul, when he's writing that to, to the Romans, he's writing to Christians. I look forward to coming and preaching the gospel to you who are in Rome. He's talking to Christians. So Christianity, I, I believe, gets down to this. It, it, it's about us uh, living out who we are already in Jesus. It's about worship. We worship him by living the gospel, by uh, proclaiming or preaching the gospel to one another and proclaiming it to those who don't yet know him. This is what he's called us to. This is what we get to be a part of. Our life is essentially about this mission, to worship him. So I don't know if we could have perhaps the worship group come up and you guys could serve us by helping us to recalibrate our hearts a bit more and really practice this even this morning to begin worshiping him for who he, that he has done it. Amen? Amen.